0: It is good to have you all back here in this building with me. There have been many others here, nine or ten others, uh, as you've been watching from home, but it's good to have the rest of you here. I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 7, and we will be reading to the end of verse 19. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It is an appropriate song to lead us into our passage this morning of Jesus having great crowds follow him and then as he calls the 12 to himself, they decided to follow Jesus and they were faced with the question at the end of the book of Mark if they would turn away from him. And that's the most important question that you'll face this morning. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Mark chapter 3, verse 7. If you've been with us or tracking with us as we've been going through the book of Mark, you'll know that what we've seen thus far, uh, particularly in chapter 2, we've seen that Jesus has emphasized his authority over a great deal, many things. He's emphasized his authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to eat with sinners and thus accept them and welcome them into his presence Jesus has authority to dispense with fasting, to postpone that and put that off. He has authority to supersede the Sabbath and to heal on the Sabbath, to actually define for God's people what the Sabbath is and what it means for God's people. And we've seen the Pharisaical opposition continue to grow. As Jesus has stated his claim, expanding the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God here on earth. As Jesus does that, there's the pharisaical pushback, the opposition that we see continue to grow. There's the silent accusations, the questions that they've got in their minds. And then they start to intensify their questions, silently mumbling to themselves, then mumbling to the disciples, and then eventually questioning Jesus And then at the end of last week, what we saw in verse 6 of chapter 3 was that the Pharisees went out after seeing what Jesus was claiming, who he was claiming to be and what he was claiming to do in establishing the kingdom of God, we see the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They have a plot to go out to kill Jesus, destroy and ruin everything that he stands for, to tear him down and to destroy what he's doing. And that's where we pick up with our section in verse 7 of chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he, whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Would you just bow with me again as we come before the Lord, Father? We ask you now in this time to show us what it means to follow Jesus. Help us to see and understand and have this great desire to trust him more fully and to follow him more completely. I have many of the same things that I want to pray for, Lord, that Sam has already prayed for. We want to pray for our elders and deacons. Sam mentioned the decisions that they are faced with and the decisions that have to be made. And Lord, we do ask for wisdom. We ask for grace and insight to make the right decisions. But Lord, would you also be working in them to make them complete and whole followers of Jesus. May their character be above question. May their their walk with you take priority in their lives. Yes, the decisions are important, but may may their lives reflect that they love you above everything else. We pray for the pastoral search team. And Lord, There's discussions that have to be had and there's interviews and questions and all sorts of important things that need to be discussed. And we think of this candidate that we're meeting with, we don't know whether he's the one, but you do. And whoever it may be, Lord, whoever the future pastor is of Crestwick Baptist Church, we pray that you would be working in him and in his heart, that he might love you above everything else. That he might prioritize what you think over what other people think that his character and his personality would be driven to professing who you are, that he would be having a great desire to preach and to teach boldly and to proclaim the truth of the scriptures and that his drive and his love of you would drive the love that he would have for this church. And Lord, we we ask that as we come to your word, we pray that you would you would help us to see, help us to understand. Because we confess again, and we should do this every week, Lord, we confess again that if we are to get anything out of this, if we were to make any sense of what you have to say to us, we need your help. We need your spirit to come to open our eyes. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have been tracking with us for the past couple of weeks, you will notice that verse 7 sounds very familiar. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. We've seen that before. Back in chapter 2, specifically, in verse 13, we saw that Jesus goes out, crowds follow him. Jesus actually goes out to, to withdraw, it says, to get away, to go on a retreat. Now, perhaps that's because he's just faced opposition from the Pharisees. He's been battling them on a mental and theological level, and so he's just, he's just going somewhere peaceful to get away from the crowd, But we've seen this before and it's almost like that time in school where the teacher keeps giving you the same question over and over again or keeps rehashing the same thing over and over again. Did anybody else ever experience that? Kids, are you? Yeah. RJ, yeah? Don't, isn't that kind of annoying? Where you you got it, right? You got it the first time. Gabby, you agree? (laughs) You get it the first time. The information is presented to you and you go, okay, I get it. Let's move on. And then they come back to it. And you go, okay, I get it. I got it the second time too. And then maybe they come back to it a third time or a fourth time. Why why bring up this same information again? Jesus going out, crowds following him. We get it, Mark. We get it that this is what happens. Jesus leaves, people follow him. Why tell us the same thing? Because essentially, it is the same thing. Jesus going out and people just following him. And the crowds are coming to him. He's going to be teaching. He's always teaching. That's brought up over and over and over again. He's continually teaching wherever he goes and crowds continually follow him because they hear what he's doing, the great things that he's doing. And what we need to see here as we move into this next section is that Jesus and his message, same scene, same scenario, same thing that's happened for a couple of chapters, people coming to him. But there's a slight twist because his ministry, his message is expanding. It's going beyond just the Jewish realm, the Jewish region, the Jewish people. It's the same scene, but expanding ministry. Mark lists the places that these people come from, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. That is, those are the places that were primarily Jewish. Had Hebrew people living in and amongst them. They were, there weren't too many Gentiles, weren't too many people from outside nations who lived in here. But then you get to Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan, that is across the Jordan, the Trans Jordan regions, you've got um, Judea on one side of the Jordan, and then on the other side, do I have this backwards? Let me see if I got this right. So you got the, the Jordan River, you got Jerusalem, Israel over here, and on the other side. I just had to make sure I had that right, because you're facing the other way. And so on the other side of the Jordan River, these nations, and these Idumea and these nations on the other side, they would have been mixed They would have had a a mixed group of people. There would have been Jewish people living there. There would have been people from other nations. This is kind of a spillover from the Babylonian exile. Then we're told that there are people from around Tyre and Sidon, and that's way up to the north. That's primarily Gentile. There would have been Jews living there, but it's primarily a Gentile region. All of these regions would have, at one point, before the Babylonian exile, been Israel's nation, just the people of Israel living there. But once Babylon came in, took them out, these places have been settled in by people other than the Jewish nation. And what we're seeing, by the fact that Mark lists all of these different places, we're being told that yes, Jesus has come to preach and teach the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. That message is for the Jewish people and also for the nations. Jesus is doing something that John never did. John preached only to Jewish people. Jesus is doing something that was prophesied back in Isaiah. He, that is the servant of the Lord, is becoming a, he's being a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations. It's not just for the Jewish people. Who Jesus is and what he's come to do isn't just to be kept within the Jewish box, it's for all of the nations. And the fact that Mark seemingly just repeats something, he adds a little bit more to it. This message, the very same message does not change depending on who's listening. The message is the same, whether you are from Jerusalem, from Edomia, from Tyre, or from Sidon, what do you need to hear? That the kingdom of God has come and you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Same scene, but expanding ministry And when the great crowds hear all that he is doing, they come to him. Of course, we've seen that before. But when they hear what he's doing, not when they hear what he is saying and what he is teaching, they're all focused on what can he do. The miracles, the impressive feats that nobody else can seem to do. And their coming to him is not a response of faith. Mark does not associate their response with like the four men and the paralytic, remember that? When Jesus saw them and what they did, their actions were an act of faith. Mark never does that with the crowd. The crowd does not come to Jesus because it's a response of faith. In fact, we're actually told, there's a couple of words in here that seem to indicate that it's not actually a very nice experience for anybody who would have been there. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, lest they mob him. They're pressing in around him. They're falling on top of him. There's so many people and they're just trying to get as close to Jesus as possible because they want Jesus to do something for them. And quite frankly, verse 10 is the germaphobe's nightmare. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him. They came close to him to touch him. Why? Why? Because Jesus can actually heal. We ought not forget about that. Because Jesus actually has compassion on everyone who comes to him. He doesn't turn these people away even though they're there for the wrong reason. What do they need? They need to hear the message that he has to preach. But he will also have compassion on their hurting, ailing, and sick bodies. And so they come to him and they're in danger of actually crushing Jesus. That's why he's got the boat there. And Jesus will be crushed at one time, one day. He will be crushed on the cross. And there's that prophecy in Isaiah, that passage in Isaiah, he was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord, and the Lord was pleased to crush him. Isaiah 53. And Jesus will one day be crushed by the weight of the sin of the world. And he will experience and take on the full wrath of God for his people. But it's not today. It's not right now. Not at this moment. This whole scene is not meant to be one of quietness. You know the paintings of Jesus where he's sitting there and he's holding a lamb. And and there's the children kind of sitting around him and he's teaching them or talking to them or something. That's not this scene. It's not a peaceful scene. It's not a quiet scene. It's not an enjoyable scene for most people. You throw in some unclean spirits into this scene and it's building up, shaping up to be kind of a raucous occasion. It's gonna be loud. It's gonna be rambunctious. There's gonna be people pushing and shoving just to get to Jesus. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And this is the irony that we find in the book of Mark, is that the crowds come to Jesus over and over and over again. People will come to Jesus over and over and over again for healing, for help, for a miracle. And the irony that we see in verse 11 is that the evil spirits, the demons, the unclean spirits, the ones in direct opposition to God, know more about God than the crowds do. They profess the truth of who Jesus is better than the crowds do, better than the people who are listening to what Jesus is preaching and teaching. The evil spirits profess the truth. They see the true nature of the man that stands before them, and they fall down. The crowds fell on top of Jesus. They, they were in danger of crushing Jesus, but the evil spirits fall down in front of Jesus, not in willing and wonderful worship, but because they recognize and see him for who he truly is. And Jesus, again, as we will see over and over and over again, Jesus has authority over them. That is, these evil spirits, it's not an arm wrestling match between these evil spirits and Jesus. Jesus simply shows up and they fall down. They can't even stand in his presence. And he keeps them as he sends them out, because he always casts them out. He always sends them away. And as he does that, he strictly orders them not to talk about him. Not to make him known. We've seen that before too. Jesus casting out evil spirits, sending people away, and saying, don't talk about this. Don't make me known. And we talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he keep the evil spirits from making him known? Well, one, it's probably because you don't want the enemy talking about who you actually are. That causes confusion. You don't want evil spirits telling the truth because... Can you ever trust a liar? Even when they tell the truth. If they're always a liar, how do you know when to trust them? Kind of like the boy who cried wolf. He got into trouble. Why? Because he was always telling a lie, and then all of a sudden he spoke the truth, and nobody believed him. So these evil spirits, who continually want to manipulate and destroy everything that God is setting up and establishing, they profess the truth, but that would be confusing for people. So Jesus keeps them silent. Jesus keeps other people silent. He doesn't want the crowds, he doesn't want people that he heals to go out and talk about all of this because Jesus will determine when he will reveal himself, make himself known. But Jesus has already been doing that. Jesus started in chapter 2 revealing who he was, proclaiming who he was, establishing the authority that he had over these various regions of life. So why now? Why the quietness? Why the silence? Jesus has already started to reveal himself and will continue to do so, but on his terms. In his own timing, in his own ways, and as we will see in verses 13 through 19, he is going to handpick those who will reveal him, those who will talk about him, those who will be with him, and who will bring his message. He calls the 12 up on a mountain. And he went up on the mountain. We're not told exactly what mountain and they called to him those whom he desired and he came and they came to him the mountain again we're not told we don't know exactly which mountain this is we don't know where it is but we know it's a mountain and the mountain in mark and particularly in the old testament is not just a geographical location it is that but the mountain is where the lord reveals himself later in the book of mark jesus will go up onto a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And there, he will be transfigured before them. Those three will see something that nobody else has ever seen before. They will see and experience something that the other nine did not get to experience. Jesus revealed himself in a more powerful way to those three at that time in that way up on a mountain. If you think of the Old Testament, the revelation that happened on mountains in the Old Testament... Moses received the law of God. God revealed his perfect will and his perfect desire for his people up on a mountain. And he gave it to Moses on a mountain. You think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on a mountain. And there God revealed himself to be greater and more powerful. And in fact to be the only true God of the universe. Over against the prophets of Baal. Baal, where is he? Is he just sleeping? Maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a break. No, Baal, Baal stands Nowhere close to Yahweh, to God. God reveals who he is on the mountain. Noah, where did the ark come to rest? On the top of the mountain. And there God revealed to Noah the promise that never again will I destroy the earth in this way. The mountain is not just a geographical location. When we see that he went up onto the mountain and he calls to them, those whom he desires and they come to him, what we're being told is Jesus is going to reveal himself to these 12 guys. And they are going to go out and they are going to reveal Jesus to the rest of the world. The point is not what they are on their own who these guys are. We're not actually told a whole lot about these guys. The point is what Jesus is going to do with them, what Jesus is going to make them into. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There's three things that are highlighted about what the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus are called to do. First of all, they're called to be with him. That's first and foremost what you are called to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be with Jesus. Not to be with the world, not to be of the world. Yes, we're called to be with each other, but why do we gather to be with Jesus? And what we have at the end of the gospels is the promise of Jesus Christ that he will be with us to the very end of the age, wherever we go. We have the promise of Jesus that he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to actually indwell, to tabernacle in us, that God himself is living and residing. He has set up shop inside of you and with me. And what we are called to do as followers of Jesus is just to be with him. But then he also calls them to himself so that he can send them out. He sends them out to preach not just to talk, not just to babble, but to preach his message. That's the implication. He's calling them to himself to reveal more of himself to them so that they can go out and then tell other people about him. Who's more qualified to explain and reveal who Jesus is? The evil spirits who, yes, recognize something of who he is or those who have spent time with Jesus. Those who have gotten to see and to understand and to know the heart of the Savior, they are called to go out and to preach his message and they are called to have authority to cast out demons. That is, to act. Not just to speak, but to do. And they act not in their own strength, not in their own power, not even in their own authority. They act on his authority. On who he is. On who he claims to be. And on what he does to be with Jesus, to preach his message, to act with his authority, that's just, that's not hard to understand. That's pretty basic. And yet these are the three things that will define the next three years of of the 12. They will be with Jesus and they will preach his message and they will act with his authority. Then the list of the 12 actually are given. We know very little about most of these men. We know very little outside of um, the three. There's the inner three, and we get a little bit more details about them. There's a couple of identifiers, a couple of nicknames given. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James and John get the nickname Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. You know what that means? They were loud. Sons of loudness. That's what we're being told. They were just loud guys. I think I'm going to take that nickname for myself. I am continually getting in trouble in the office for being too loud. We're given a couple of things about some other guys. Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's a couple of qualifiers on these guys, but not much about the others. And most are not even mentioned again in Mark. They're not brought up. They're not listed. They're not talked about. So why list them? Why list the 12? Maybe for historical fact, Mark is just identifying for his readers who the 12 were, who the 12 guys were that actually walked around, talked with, ate with, learned from, were sent out by Jesus. But Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, that's just to distinguish him from James, the brother of John. Thaddeus, Simon, Judas. We know a lot about Judas. He plays in a fairly significant role coming to the end of the gospel accounts. We may not know much about who these guys were. We know that Peter often put his foot in his mouth, right? He often spoke before thinking. He was the spokesperson for the twelve coming to Jesus we know that James and John would get into disputes with each other and with the other disciples about who gets to sit on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus. Who's more important? Who's categorically just in the hierarchy of the disciples? Yeah, Jesus, we all follow you, but who's, who's really more important? Let all sit over here. My brother will sit over there. We know that we're, we're really your, your right hand men. Other than that, not much else. We don't know much else about these guys. And you know what? That's okay. Because we know what they taught. We know what they preached. We know what they believed. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the early church, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, after Peter has preached his sermon at Pentecost, after he's explained what has happened historically in the life of Jesus and what that now means for people They cry out, what do we do? What does this mean that Jesus died and rose again? What does that mean for you and me? It means that we fall down in front of him, proclaim him for who he is in repentance and faith. And we're told after that, that the early church, the very first thing that they did in their gatherings, the things that they prioritized, first and foremost was followed the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Preaching, communion, and fellowship and prayer. That's what was marked, that was, that's what marked the early church. And we don't know much about these guys in particular, but we know and have all of the trickle effects of what they taught and what they preached. We have Peter's sermon. We have the Apostle Paul's sermons We have some of his letters. We have some other letters that weren't by apostles, but were people who spent time with Jesus. And we don't know much about all of these people. We don't know much about a lot of these people who actually get listed in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about the people in the Old Testament. Just passing names. But we know what they taught. And we know what they believed. We know what their message was. Because the message that they taught, the message that they preached and went out and, and, act, and acted on was the same message that Jesus preached. It's the same message that the people in Jerusalem needed to hear, the people in Edomia, the people across the Jordan, the people in Tyre and Sidon. It's the same message that we need to hear today. Jesus has come. Repent and believe. There's a couple of important things I think we should take from this list, from this passage here. I've got three things and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Three important things to notice. The first is this, that these men are very different. Some are fishermen, some are tax collectors. One is a zealot, that is he's um, a part of a group that would have been labeled maybe an extremist group. Not, not very popular, but there was very popular within the people who believed. And these men are very different from very different backgrounds. Can you imagine what the first deacons meeting would have been like with those 12 how would they have gotten along how would they have worked and functioned together let's say Jesus actually goes he withdraws as he often did to pray what did the what did those 12 talk about what were the social interactions between those 12 they were very very different people and they were very very different in their persuasion of how things should be done but they were all united by the same call of Christ. We mentioned this a few weeks ago when talking about Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, the tax collector, who in all likelihood collected taxes from Simon and Andrew and James and John. They're very different and they may not have got along on the outside, but they were called to be united by the one call of Jesus Christ. Come follow me. Come be with me. That's an important thing for you and I because you and I are more than 12 you and I are more diverse than these 12. You and I will have different opinions, different thoughts. You and I will have different personalities and character flaws and characteristics that will butt heads with other people. And yet, what we need to remember, first and foremost, and above everything else, is that you and I are united by the same call of Jesus Christ to come follow him. Whatever differences, whatever discussions, and they're all important, we, we don't just sweep things on, under the rug. We have those discussions But we remind ourselves, for all the differences we have, we are one in Jesus Christ. Second thing that I think is important to recognize with this group is that Jesus did not need any of them. He didn't need any of these men to do his ministry more effectively. He didn't need any of them because he could have done a better job without them. You think of all the problems that Peter caused Jesus. The conversations that Jesus had to have because of the, the quabbles. The, the discussions that these guys had in the background. How they probably actually slowed Jesus down on his ministry and on his mission. He didn't need any of them, but he chose to include them for their benefit. For their growth, for their edification. He can do all of these things, all the things that Jesus is going to have the 12 apostles do, the 12 disciples do, the things that Jesus calls us to do. He could do infinitely better. Can't he? He can certainly preach better than I can. He can lead small group Bible studies better than you can. He can do everything better than we can. So why does he call us? There's an important thing in here. Verse 13. He called to him those whom he desired. Because he wants to. Not because he has to or has this great need, but because he wants to. He wants to include us. In the same way, I've probably used this example before, in the same way that Amelia and Naomi will get their stools, will get the chairs, they'll get to the counter, and they'll help Candace make cookies. Candace does not need their help in making cookies. She doesn't. Kids like to help parents make things. Amelia liked to help me change the tire on the car. And you know what? She just got in the way. It's actually a hindrance. But it's a weird feeling to have somebody in the way to recognize that I could do something better without them. And I still love it. You love your kids just wanting to be involved in what you're doing. To be a part of what's going on. Jesus can do all of these things far better than these disciples can and ever will. And he can do things better than you and I can. But he is pleased. He is happy. It puts a smile on his face to have his followers involved in his ministry. The last thing. We'll end with verse 19. It's very short. just actually has Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. It would have been tempting for Mark, I think, to forget Judas, right? Because Mark's writing after the whole, whole story's taken place, after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And Mark is writing in all likelihood to Gentile believers in Rome. He's writing to people who who don't have a full, the full story yet, it would have been super easy and super convenient. Let's just leave Judas out of the story at the beginning. He comes in at the end. He betrays Jesus. Let's just leave him out. And he actually doesn't just list him. He, he gives that qualifier, who betrayed him? Right at the outset, right at the beginning, we know we're set up for the betrayal of Judas at the end of the gospel account. And I think his inclusion reminds us That Jesus, his work, his ministry, his mission, that Jesus will accomplish his purposes despite the faults and failures of his followers. Chapter 14, verse 50 of Mark, we're told that after Jesus is arrested, after Judas has betrayed him, that all of them desert him and flee. So these 12, for all the faults and failures that we'll have highlighted throughout the gospel ministry, At the very end, they all desert, they all leave. And Jesus' mission didn't fail. The purposes for which he came weren't thwarted. They weren't destroyed because his his followers failed. You and I are going to mess up royally in our following Jesus. You may be able to look into your past and to go, I didn't do what I should have. I messed up in following Jesus. And actually, to use the biblical terminology, I sinned. This is just a personal hobby horse that I'll get on right now. I think we need to get away from the terminology of, I messed up, I slipped up, I stumbled a little bit. The Bible calls that sin. And his followers are going to sin in massive ways. They are going to desert Jesus in massive ways. They are going to give every reason for Jesus to have never picked them in the first place. And that's not going to mess up the plans of God. God is working in and through our weaknesses. God is working in and through our failures and all of our faults. And actually, the fact that you and I are filled with all of these different failures, and Jesus still accomplishes that which he came for, Jesus still continues to expand the kingdom, even though we do everything to actually cause the kingdom to to be pulled back, that gives God glory when he uses the weak. Because when you and I are weak, and things still happen, The kingdom still marches on. The kingdom still advances. That means that Jesus is doing something. That Jesus is still at work. That despite all of the things that could cause us to get in the way, Jesus still changes the tire. Jesus still bakes the cookies, even though we've put the flour all over the place. And he's actually pleased to have us involved. That doesn't mean that we stop caring. That doesn't mean we close our doors because Jesus can do it better. That doesn't mean that we just pack up and we, f- we don't even try. It actually should give us confidence that we can just barrel on ahead following Jesus. We can pick up whatever thing he's put in front of us that he's called us to do. And we can go, okay, Lord, I know I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to try to mess up, but I know I probably will. Lord, help me. Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to keep going. I want to do what's best. And Lord, if anything good ever comes out of this, I know I have to turn it all back to you. The Glory's all got to go back to him. We've got nothing for ourselves. All praise, glory, and honor goes to him. May God help us to follow Jesus better. May God help us to recognize and see that he is pleased to have us involved in what's going on. And may God be pleased to do a great work in and through us. That's why we're here. Yes, to be fed. Yes, to worship. But the reason we set up ministries, the reason we do things is so that he'll receive glory and honor. What better way than to use weak, feeble, sinners like us. You will bring glory to God in what you do for him. That's incredible. That's astounding. Father, we are grateful. We are thankful that you have decided that you are, you are pleased to use people like us, that you don't put us on the sidelines, that you don't save us to sit this one out, that you call us to follow you completely and wholly and fully. And as we stumble, as we fumble, and as we sin, you are ready and willing to forgive. We're so grateful that you are willing and pleased to use us and that you're pleased to use us for the furthering of your kingdom. Find us faithful, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.